It's still snowing, in case you're wondering. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks for showing up today. We appreciate that. Whoever prayed for the snow, we love you anyway. It's, it's here, and it's good. We've got a couple frozen pipes down the hallway. No damage yet, but we got the heat on everywhere. That's why we did a 1030 only whenever the extreme weather hits. Uh, just, yeah, we knew it was coming, so we kind of braced ourselves. We are recovering. Those who are tuning in live stream, we appreciate you too. Thanks for tuning in. If you're watching this later, appreciate that as well. Every little bit helps, so thanks for your support. Kings Kids, before I let you go, I want you to listen to him read the Bible. And he's a good example of that, you know, even if you'll have to read the Bible sometimes off a screen. But it, I didn't have the version I wanted. Yeah, on so. The show. What version are you reading from? New American Standard. Okay, thanks for not doing the Amplified. No, He's blackballed no, no, no. from reading the Amplified from the pulpit because it takes too long. <laughs> and I haven't gotten my interlinear versions yet. All right, yeah, so he's working on it. Um, we are going to be reading from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes this morning. Now, brace yourself. We've already been through that whole book before, so I'm not doing the. I'm, we're not going to spend months on Ecclesiastes. Today is, um, you'll see. But where are we in Ecclesiastes? Verses 11 through 17, chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're touching on wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Uh, does anybody know what book of the Bible Ecclesiastes is after? Bible drill? Proverbs. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. There's a lot of poetry here. You ready? I think so. I primed them, so okay. here we go. I saw again under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors. And neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability. For time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, a man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it and surrounded it and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Amen. <laughs> King's kids, if you are in second grade on down, you are dismissed to Helena. Helena is your teacher today. Be nice to her. She's cold. The title this morning for this summary of Ecclesiastes is Critical Pushback. We have finished Proverbs, but there is more wisdom to find. And there's more wisdom tied to Solomon. If we summarize wisdom, wisdom is fearing and loving the Lord our God. Wisdom is fearing and loving the Lord our God. And the Bible talks about that in more places 
than just Proverbs, more places than just Ecclesiastes, more places than Job and Song of Songs. Fearing and loving the Lord is the battle cry of really the whole Bible. Even Jesus talks about not fearing those who can destroy your flesh, but, to, but fear the one, the one whose ultimate judgment is over our souls. And that's a different kind of fear because to fear God, we have seen through the Bible, to truly fear God means you run to him, not away from him. We're not afraid of God, but we revere him. We, we tremble because he's awesome, but we rejoice because he is calling us to himself. The very character and nature of God should at the same time make us holy and afraid, but drawn in. And it all goes together. The true fear of the Lord is to love God and to draw near to God. It is a good thing to fear the Lord. Proverbs has been teaching us that. Proverbs has been laying down all these life lessons. Here's the best way to live. Here's the best way to, to find the promises of God. And then Ecclesiastes gives us this. If you've never read the book of Ecclesiastes, you need to. Because what it does is it pushes back against all of the high ideologies of the rest of the Bible, not just Proverbs, but especially Proverbs. Proverbs says, this leads to this. And Ecclesiastes says, this does not always lead to this. Sometimes this leads to this. Sometimes the rich lose everything and the poor gain everything. Sometimes the righteous suffer and the unrighteous prosper. What's going on? Ecclesiastes gives us critical pushback That's its place in the Bible. I think of, I think of the, the wisdom literature books like this. Proverbs is like a letter from a parent to the child. Hey, here's the best way to live. And, and it takes a lifetime to unpackage that. Even if you wrote down all of your wisdom for your kids, that, it would be longer than Proverbs. So Proverbs is a summary the book of Ecclesiastes is like a, a letter from an uncle. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. Because I've, I've had a few people like this in my family. <laughs> Job, we're going to do the book of Job next week, is like a, a letter from a grandparent. Ecclesiastes says, hey, what about this? And, and then Job is kind of like the grandpa who says, hold my coffee. I'm going to show you. And then Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, also called the Book of Canticles, is like a letter from God himself. Each of these wisdom books gives us a different perspective on God and God's wisdom. Solomon is the common um, glue that holds it all together. Proverbs, we know that Proverbs, a lot of Proverbs was written by Solomon, but not all of it. Ecclesiastes, I, I doubt that it was written by Solomon himself, but it's a son of David, and it's kind of in the family tree. It's one of probably his sons. Job, not written by Solomon, but it is tied to Solomon, 
because it touches on wisdom. Song of songs, highly probable, was written by Solomon, but not the way he intended. It looks kind of like it's been copied and pasted from several of his songs. Remember, Solomon wrote a thousand songs, several love songs, I'm sure. And he, the Bible has edited that for us and put together the song of songs. That's, that's a really interesting phrase in the Bible. It goes with holy of holies, the holiest of holy places, the king of kings, the king of all kings. This in the Bible is the song of all songs. We're going to look at that as well. And Solomon is the glue and the common thread that puts all of these together. Well, where did the rest of the wisdom literature come from? Um, time out, because some of what I'm doing right now is letting, laying the groundwork for when we talk about uh, Job and Song of Solomon in the next week. So I'm kind of introducing three sermons at once this morning. Patience, we'll get there. So where did all the other wisdom literature come from? What are the sources, the other sources of wisdom? Well, first of all, you, you have other kings in David's line. There are other kings who are also called son of David. There's, here's some of the good, just four of the good, well, three of the good kings, and then one that's like a wild card. Asa, Josiah, Hezekiah, and in Proverbs, we, we got some wisdom from Lemuel and Lemuel's mother, right? God is using multiple generations of Israelites and Middle Easterners to put together the wisdom that we find in the Bible. It's not just Solomon. And so in the wisdom literature, we've got some paragraphs, sentences, and from Hezekiah, even entire chapters that he, under his leadership, has edited and added to. And he didn't do it alone. Where else did the wisdom literature come from? Well, there were active prophets and scribes under those kings and under other Davidic kings. God was speaking through his people. God spoke through Elijah and Elisha. And if you remember those stories, there was a group of guys called the School of Prophets who, who followed Elijah and Elisha around as much as they could. And they, they recorded things. They wrote down things. We don't have record that like Elijah and Elisha wrote stuff down. They even had their own personal scribe writing things. God would tell them things. They would tell it to somebody else, and they would write it down. They would record it. And over time, those prophecies, those words from God were collated, put together, edited by the school of prophets, and then protected by the kings of Israel. And so you've, it's, a, it's a network. Anytime anyone says to you the Bible is written by man, your first thing out of your mouth should, should be, yep. Yes, under the inspiration of God, under the hand of God. When we see it put together, it is a beautiful tapestry. God speaks our language through people like us, but, number three, does it through holy men and women of old who are guided by the Holy Spirit. That's what 2 Peter 1.21 summarizes it as. Well, the Bible's written by men, comma, under the leadership and inspiration of God. How else would you want him to do it? Just write it in the sky? You wouldn't believe that. Write it in stone? You wouldn't believe it. You'd say somebody else wrote that in stone. Somebody else wrote that in the sky. It's a trick. It's a deception. 
any way that God were to reveal himself to us, people would disagree with. Because the, the point is not how God speaks to us. The point is whether or not people even want to believe that God is speaking at all. They want him out of the picture. They either totally disagree with God and want to be the kings of their own lives, or they don't even believe God exists. And so the Bible, the Bible knows that. God knows that. And so in the book of Ecclesiastes, we get some pushback. Solomon is the prototype king of Israel. Think of him in his heyday, the first, the first 10, 20 years of his rule. Peace, expansion of the kingdom, building of his home, building of the temple, all nations are finding their way to Jerusalem. Like, the descriptions, all the descriptions of the temple are the language of Genesis and Eden. He's done it. He's reestablished the rule of God on the earth. The second Eden is here. Yes, he, Solomon is the man. He's the son of David. Remember the prophecy? The Messiah is coming. He's going to lead us into the holiness and he's going to restore peace on earth. That's Solomon. Close. But Solomon is uh, a Jekyll and Hyde figure. He has all the wisdom of God, all the, all the pedigree, all the promises. Gets so close, but just like us, just like you. You are just like Solomon. You have that potential, but you sin. We choose selfishness. We struggle. Solomon is a picture. He's a prototype king. He's a prototype human. He is very much at his point in history, a second Adam. God has established him, God has, and he chooses to grasp and take out of order wives, alcohol, wealth, horses. Like horses, that has a very specific uh, connotation. The kings of Israel were not supposed to pile up by horses from Egypt. What does Solomon do? Horses from Egypt. Not supposed to pile up all kinds of princesses and queens from other nations. What does Solomon do? He's grasping after everything God warned him against. He's the prototype king of Israel. He's the prototype human. We need to see ourselves in there. And so with his wisdom, we get, the, we get some tension. How does this guy know all this stuff when he's not living all this stuff? Why should we listen to him when he didn't do it? Enter Ecclesiastes. So the wisdom literature captures Solomon. Uh, go to the next slide. So Proverbs uh, said it's like a parent, very much the vibe of a, of a father who's beginning to sense his age and sees that he needs to prepare his children for life without their dad. That's the vibe of Proverbs. Hey, son, sit down. I need to teach you some things before I'm gone. You're the next king. You're the next Man of the house, you're going to be your own man. Listen to my wisdom. That's, that's the message of Proverbs. Ecclesiastes is more like a middle-aged, thinking of retirement, unfiltered, crazy uncle. 
It's that person in your family who sees the negative in everything and talks about it. It's that person in your family who's not afraid to push back against common sense, even questioning many of the things we've always taken for granted. I've had a couple of those in my family. And some of you look kind of puzzled right now. If, that, if you can't think of that person in your family, it might be you. <laughs> it might be you. If you're like, I don't ever have, I don't have any crazy uncles, aunts. No, nobody ever does that at family stuff. Oh, wait a minute. I do that. I'm the negative Nancy. I'm the crazy uncle. Wait a minute. Yeah, just newsflash. Every family has them. Ecclesiastes has got that kind of voice in the middle of it. Then the book of Job, that's, that's like the voice of the grandfather who has been to war, seen the world, tasted the best and the worst of life and is now ready to calmly advise his grandchildren the book of job is deep song of songs recaptures the mystery of lady wisdom that is introduced by solomon in proverbs song of songs recaptures the mystery of lady wisdom from proverbs and The Song of Songs is going to show God's people how much God longs to pursue us, love us, but not yet. He's chasing, he's calling, but he hasn't arrived in full quite yet. So in Ecclesiastes, open your Bible, let's turn to chapter 1. I'm going to read four little sections to give you uh, the flow of the book, and then we'll end with the purpose and the message, and I want... I'm doing this to show you how it ties into the bigger picture of wisdom literature and how it counterbalances some of those ideals that you know you can't keep from Proverbs and how Proverbs doesn't always work out. Those are not promises. Those are guidelines. And Ecclesiastes is making sure you understand that Proverbs are not promises because it doesn't always work out that way. It is there on purpose. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Which of the kings? I'm not exactly sure. But I have a hunch. My hunch is it's Hezekiah. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. Hevel. All is enigma or mystery. Not quite meaningless. If your Bible says meaningless, that's not the, that, it's more of a mystery, an enigma. Uh, the word hevel, it's translated as uh, meaningless or vapor or smoke, has the idea of something you can see and you try to grab it, but it's not solid. All of life seems to be a vapor, seems to be vain. And the harder I try to grab it, the more I miss it. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Verse 3. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? If you're the person who writes in their Bible, you need to circle that phrase right now. Under the sun. Under the sun refers to this limited perspective in life. Without supernatural revelation. Under the sun. Life as we see it. Life as we feel it but not taking into account 
all of the ways God has explained why it is this way. That phrase, under the sun, limited human perspective. For me, just looking at life the way I see it, without a God filter, without a fear of the Lord filter, it's going to come in. Ecclesiastes is going to talk about that, but that phrase is very repetitive, natural, humanistic, limited. It's the single lens of my view of the world. Doesn't bring in God's lens, doesn't bring in Scripture's lens, under the sun. So nail that down. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Verse 5. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises again. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and round goes the wind in the parking lot. That's what it's doing right now. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and a man cannot utter it all. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Nor the ear filled with hearing. I need a new song. I need a new, who's the next artist? What's the next video? What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. In some way, shape, or form, it's all happened before. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with I've seen everything that is done under the sun and behold all of it is an enigma a mystery and striving chasing after the wind in verses 1 through 14 there are two voices speaking one is the author or the editor of the book And the other voice is the critic. The critic is the one who's giving us all the pushback. The author is the one who's writing down the critic's words and introducing who the author is. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. So the the author is setting this up for us. The critic is the one who's questioning everything, or, or at least observing life as we see it and criticizing it. The Bible invites criticism. The Bible is not afraid to talk about your anger, your wrath, your sin. The Bible is not afraid to talk about suffering. The Bible is not afraid to talk about death. In fact, bring it on. You want to talk about the hardest things in life? Read your Bible. You don't know how to handle the hardest things in life? Read your Bible. You're wondering why God would allow the worst things on planet Earth? Read your your Bible. God interacts with us, talks about terrible things, even in the lives of his saints. Adultery, theft, murder, incest. Hmm. All the worst things that humans can do. It's in there. Why is it so, why is the Bible so mature? I thought it was supposed to have the, the faith of a child. 
Yes, we trust God like a child, but we are wise as serpents and then harmless as doves. We need to take, we need the dose of reality. Sometimes that reality, that frankness of the Bible wakes us up and we need it. That's why the Bible's open about it. And it can be a little scary. But as the voice of the critic rages on in chapter after chapter, talking about under the sun, the vanity of living wisely, the vanity of self-indulgence. I've tried everything. I've built everything. The vanity of, of work. The seemingly endless cycle. A time for everything, chapter 3. You live, you die. There's war, there's peace. He's, he's not saying it has to be that way. He's saying it is that way. It's not the way God made it. It's, a, it, it's not an acknowledgement of God's will, His ultimate final will. It's an acknowledgement of what God is allowing. It's an observation of the circle of life. And it's harsh. Chapter 3, from dust to dust. You ever thought that? Ever heard that at a funeral? Chapter 4, evil under the sun. Chapter 5, um, fear God starts to come in. Interesting. Chapter 6, the inability to enjoy even the good things God gives you. And then chapter 7. Chapter 7 is odd. Even in my Bible, it's like all, all these tight paragraphs. It's very easy to read. And then chapter 7 is clearly mirroring the book of Proverbs. Like, wait a minute. I thought we'd... Why are these Proverbs in Ecclesiastes? Because he's, he's throwing a bone to, back, to, back to Solomon and the, and the wisdom that we are supposed to live by. I'm going to read verse 29, chapter 7, verse 29. He goes through all these little wisdom nuggets. And he says, see, verse 29, this alone I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made man upright, but mankind is searching out many schemes. When does the Bible talk about that? How early in the Bible does that come into the picture? Chapter 3 of Genesis. Genesis again. Here it is. Agreement. I'm seeing life. But I'm sounding like a broken record. God made mankind upright. Why is there evil and suffering? If we're going to talk about it, put the blame where the blame needs to land. We are the problem. Sin is humanity's problem, not God's. We are the ones who scheme. And it is God's plan that will finally fix everything we've done. The thing that should shock us most about suffering and death is when the Bible talks about it, we should be shocked, flabbergasted, 
that God steps in to end it. That's the amazing thing about grace and mercy. Not that sin exists, but that God in his infinite holiness decides to come in and fix it. That's what should blow our minds. That God would step in and do something about it because he doesn't have to. He doesn't owe us anything. Sin is our problem, not God's. And with our New Testament minds, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, if we will pause and think about it, should fill us with sorrow and joy every time to remember all that he has done. The cross is God's final solution to humanity's sin, suffering, and death problem. All the sin and suffering and misery that humanity has piled upon itself throughout the history of time, Jesus is willing to take it upon himself. That is what should change our thinking about God, about who God is, and, uh, and, then, and then about how we view life under the sun. Is it all hopeless? Is it all meaningless? Looks like it. We just get up and do the same grind, nine to five, go home. We, life on planet Earth is this huge cycle, we go through seasons, seasons of life, seasons around the globe. We, we just, generations come, generations go. There's life, there's death, there's birth, there's sickness, there's life, there's death, there's birth, there's sickness. And we just keep going through it over and over again. The critic says, Ugh! and God says, it is finished. In God's mind, there's going to be an end. We haven't seen it yet. We're still in the middle of the cycles. Jesus is speaking to us through Scripture, telling us he's broken that cycle. Well, give me some proof. Three days? Give me three days. I'll give you all the proof you need. He defeats the power of the cycles of death by resurrecting from the dead. Why, he's called the first, the firstborn. He has been ushered into a new existence glorified body we who are united to him by faith right now are promised to be taken out of the suffering and the pain and eventually taken into his presence that's what the critic is doing turn to chapter 9 even with all this critical pushback chapter 9 i don't have it in your notes but in chapter 9, the critic shows that living in God's wisdom is still the preferred choice, even in the face of mystery and meaninglessness and struggle and suffering and death. It, it takes an, the book takes an interesting turn in chapter 9. Um, death comes to all is the big theme, verses 1 through 6. Death comes to all. And so in, in verse 7, the critic says, Go. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let 
Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life. Verse 11. And this is our scripture reading this morning. The race is not to the swift. The fastest people don't always win. So learned the Miami Dolphins yesterday. They've got the fastest players in the NFL this year, and they lost. Because it's, it's not about one or two or three little pieces. The puzzle's way bigger. You can think you've got it all figured out. You can think you're the best. And it doesn't always work. The battle doesn't always go to the strongest. The wise people don't eat the best bread. The most intelligent people don't end up being the richest. The people who are the smartest are not always looked at with the most popularity or favor on planet Earth. The end of verse 11, time and chance happen to them all. Yeah. From this perspective, it looks, looks like time and chance, randomness, luck, or bad luck. From God's perspective, it's He's showing us we can't figure it all out without Him. And verse 12 is probably the most famous chapter in Ecclesiastes because of how it ends. Chapter 12, the critic is done speaking in chapter 12, but the author of the book finishes the book. The critic is done. He finishes his argument. Everything is going to fail. Your teeth are going to fall out. Your back is going to break. Your joints are going to creak. Your mind is going to go. Your vision is going to fail. Dust to dust, you are going to die. Big theme of the book. You're going to die. Uh, Jared Haynes bought a T-shirt at a youth conference we went to. Big happy face. You're going to die. It was the best shirt in the youth group for a while. Uh, and the guy who did the conference, uh, was he was preaching on Ecclesiastes. We went there. You heard the whole book. And, you know, a few hours he covered it. <laughs> and uh, I think we were like the fifth stop on his little conference. He did a bunch of major cities. We went to Tulsa and watched him. And about that fifth conference, he's, he's on stage talking. <laughs> he's talking about, I wear this shirt every time I go through the airport. This was, this was pre-9-11. He wears this shirt. You're going to die. And he could not figure out. This is pre-9-11. Why he was getting chosen to be patted down every flight. <laughs> they weren't patting that many people down back then. It was a rare thing to be called out of line. It was, you know, there, just, there wasn't like threat level midnight or anything going on. It was, it, was, it was chill. Airports were chill. Your people could meet you at the gate. You, they didn't rifle through everything they weren't so paranoid about lithium batteries and lighters and your little pocket knife could even make it through security right he could not figure out why he kept getting stopped and patted down and about the fifth weekend it was that shirt it was his ecclesiastes shirt you're gonna die he, he started wearing sweater <laughs> uh People don't like that message. People don't want to pre-plan their funerals. People don't like to talk about not being here anymore. 
people are deathly afraid of dying. Don't even want to mention it. The Bible mentions it. The Bible talks about it all the time. Ecclesiastes is pushing back against your ideals of, if I live this way, God will bless me. No, he won't. That's not a promise. You're going to die. You're going to suffer. It's going to hurt. It's going to be ugly. So in the meantime, fear God, serve him, love him, revere him, enjoy a good meal with your family. Enjoy the holidays. Have some time off. Enjoy a vacation. You can enjoy life that God gives you, but don't forget. Here's, here's a big warning. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. We've heard all the pushback. Fear God. Keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God gets the final word. That should either make you shake in your boots or jump out of your shoes. If all you've done is live a life of selfishness and greed, God having the final word should paralyze you with fear. But if you have coupled your life to Jesus Christ, God's final judgment has already fallen on Jesus and you are free. You're free. The critic is done. The author finishes. And he gives us very basic theology. Basic theology gives us a backbone to handle the highs and lows of life, both under the sun and under the judgment of God. What is basic theology? God is holy. Basic theology, you are not. You've fallen, you've sinned. Basic theology, Jesus Christ is the Son of God who resurrected from the dead and is your only hope of salvation. Basic theology. You need to join your life to Jesus so that you never fall under the judgment of God, which is coming. Basic theology. Children can understand that. It's the gospel, and it cuts through the fog and the mist and the smoke of life. When you don't know what to do, go back and remember who God is. He is high and exalted above your problems and your situation. Remember who you are. You don't get a pass. Remember who Jesus is. Trust him. Trust that when he said it is finished, it is finished. The weight of your shame and guilt needs to be rolled onto him. That's how he cares for us. And go back to the promise that the way life is now, Ecclesiastes, critic, you are right. But it won't be that way forever. The author is pushing back against the pushback. 
with the truth. Basic theology. Here's the purpose of the book. Purpose of the book, to remind us there is nothing under the sun that reveals or delivers the meaning of life. You can't find the meaning of life on your own, in the stars, in nature. God has to speak, and we believe God has spoken. Message. True wisdom helps us live through the uncertainties of life by giving us a future and hope in God. It's not the mentality of, it'll be all right. No, that's too worldly. That's too optimistic, absent the Holy Spirit. Biblical optimism is hope. God is coming in judgment. And I'm not afraid of that. He is for me, not against me. Yes, he is holy. Yes, he does need to destroy all that is against him. But I am in Jesus Christ. That changes everything. Acknowledge the uncertainties of life. They're there, but you're supposed to live through them. And that should change us. In my own life, the fear of death caused me a lot of grief and worry and anxiety. In my own life, the fear of death was a huge stumbling block that felt like it was crushing me until Jesus told me, he's the stumbling block. I can stand on him and not be crushed by death. What a change to feel the weight of what you're worried about shifted into the boost that you needed incredible incredible when i first heard about jesus he was the solution but he was also outside of me can you remember a time in your life when god seemed distant i can can you remember a time in your life when god seemed very very far away when life just seemed like an endless cycle when I saw that money and career and marriages and kids, when I saw in my own family that those things that everybody was living for didn't help them live any better. Absent from God, when God is not a part of the under your son equation, life is meaningless. It does spin out of control. It does crush you. Ecclesiastes acknowledges that. But it also turns the corner and says, if you will fear God and remember his coming judgment, it sets you free to enjoy the simple things of life. We pray before every meal because we thank God for this food we are about to receive. We pray in the morning, we pray in the afternoon, we pray in the evening for everything needs to be brought before God with a grateful and a thankful heart and we rejoice for life that we have. Even if it's messed up, it won't be forever. Even if we're messed up, we won't be forever. There is hope to be found in Jesus Christ. Nothing under the sun can satisfy us. We are made to find all satisfaction in God. Stand with me as we close. My question to you is, have you hidden your life in Jesus Christ? Bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment.
Have you hidden your life in Jesus Christ? Has there been a moment in your life when you have done some serious soul business with God? When you gave up the right to your life and said, God, I cannot do this. I am running in circles. I am frustrated. I am afraid. I am anxious. I am worried. I am a sinner. I can't fix anything because all I ever do is mess everything up. Has there been a time in your life when you have willfully surrendered your life to Jesus and said, please, Take my life. Let it be wholly, completely surrendered unto thee. My life, my hands, my heart, my tongue. Can you visualize yourself doing that? Maybe you did it on your knees. Maybe you did it at camp. Maybe you did it with a parent or a grandparent or a Sunday school teacher, a vacation Bible school. You didn't have to understand all that you were doing. You didn't have to have all of your theology in line. But you did need to understand that you had to give up your life to Jesus if you have never done that, you need to. If it's been a while since you have remembered it, you need to thank Him. If you don't see that you've changed since you've done that, do it again. No need to doubt. Do it now. No need to fear. Do it today. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now in the name of Jesus. In this church and some people at home, we think of all that Jesus has done for us, all the promises we have that you will come in judgment to fix the earth, to glorify your saints, and to end the cycle of death and suffering, and we rejoice in that day because in Jesus we have a home and a kingdom that will never end. Help us as we struggle through life. Help us with the decisions we have to make. Help us with the sickness that so easily besets us and the sin and the selfishness we fall into over and over again. God, break that cycle in us now. Help us to have some victory over what we can control now. We come to you this morning with grateful hearts, thankful hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with us as we sing. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fair.
for today is from Psalm 34, verses 8 through 10. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. You are dismissed.